For our second message this afternoon, Mr. Matthew Steele. His sermon is entitled, A New World. Good afternoon. I love my country. I love its history. I love all the good that it has done in the world. I love that it brought forth freedom in our modern times. And I love the great things that it has stood for. I love to sing its anthem. Don't throw rocks at me yet. I love the land, and I love the people. But you might ask, which country am I referring to? Well, I am surrounded right now, aren't I? What it is, of course, the 4th of July weekend. The weekend when America celebrates its birthday, its independence. The day when the Continental Congress declared that it did not want to be under the British crown anymore. And I find it a little ironic, but also fitting, that I'm giving you a sermon today on this weekend. Ironic because I was born British, obviously, but fitting because in reality I have a great deal of common with the founding fathers of the United States. Because they, like me, were Englishmen. They were born under the English crown. And they considered themselves, to a point, as part of that growing imperial British empire that was stretching around the world. Just one year before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, these same men, many of these same men, set their hand right next to John Hancock and signed a treaty or signed a overture called the Olive Branch Partition. And I've talked about that before. An Olive Branch Partition asking the king to please intercede in these struggles, to please intercede against Parliament and against the crown themselves and find a just resolution to the conflict that was building. And what would history have been like if that had happened? What would history have been like if these American Englishmen, which is an odd term to our ears, isn't it? What if Parliament had seen reason and had eased their actions towards these 13 colonies? What would have history looked like? Perhaps the British war against France would have ended sooner. Certainly, there would not have been another war, the War of 1812, nor perhaps an American Civil War, because at its heart, the slavery issue in the American Civil War, the slavery issue would have been resolved, and that crime against humanity would have been outlawed when the British outlawed it around the world. And so, who knows, there may not have been an American Civil War. Because of actions of, of men have 
consequences, don't they? And sometimes unforeseen consequences. Who knows, World War I, World War II, that may not have happened either. Could you imagine the United States as part of a British empire by that period? What force would have come to challenge that combined strength? What might have been if Englishmen on both sides of the Atlantic could have found peace and a just resolution for their differences? But of course, that didn't happen. The king refused to even read the Olive Branch Partition, dismissed it out of hand. And so, within a year, another bloody civil war came to pass between brothers. But as I said earlier, I love my country. But which country do I refer to? The truth is, I love both. I love the land that formed me, its beauty, its history, its green and pleasant land, as we say. I love England. In fact, I love all of the countries of the UK because I have English and Scottish and Irish. We try to keep that quiet. <laughs> I have all of that blood running in my veins. And I'm reasonably convinced there's a little bit of Welsh in there, too because I love Wales. And so in the truest sense of the word, I am a Briton. I am from the entire island, as many of us, as many of us really are. I'm a mixture of all. I love my country, and I am a little fearful of what is going to unravel on my country as a result of the Brexit vote. Not that I was for Europe, but certainly these are uncertain times for England and the UK. I love Britain, but I also love America. I love everything that this country has stood for. And I consider this country as much mine as the land of my birth. I love all the good that it has done in the world. I love its history. I love its founding fathers. I see them as my founding fathers. In fact, I am very much a kindred spirit, I think, with John Adams. A little feisty at times, maybe a little troublesome, and maybe a little too short-tempered for my own good. I love my country, both of them. But I am not prepared to say my country right or wrong. Because somewhere along the line, both Britain and America have lost sight have lost track, and they've veered off track and are now going down a road, a path of self-destruction. There is a man in the Bible who I think felt very much perhaps like we do. Felt the same way about the country that he lived in. He loved his country. His name was Isaiah. He was a prophet of God sent to warn the people of Judah and Jerusalem what was going to happen if they didn't repent. What was going to happen if they did not seek God and turn back from their sinful and self-destructive ways. 
In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 21, he says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. Think about that for a minute. Was there ever a time when this was more true than it is today? Certainly was true for Jerusalem and Judea. But today, violence in our cities is only matched by the emergency services and the skills that manage somehow to keep people alive. I read a book one time that said that deaths in our cities, and inner cities especially, would be ten times higher if it wasn't for the advances of medical science. Violence in our cities is commonplace. That's fallen, of course, to new lows now with these constant outbreaks of mass shootings and murder that are just plaguing our society. Your silver, verse 22, has become dross. Your wine mixed with water. Silver, money, wealth. Just like in Judah and Jerusalem. What do we work for? What do we we labor for. Our wealth, it doesn't go anywhere near as, it, as far as it did. And all the time I hear on the radio and in news articles of how these successive generations of Americans now, younger generations, expect to live less well than their, their, their fathers and their grandfathers. There is a devaluation in our currency, in our money, in the things that run our society. And our wine, well, it's been watered down. Our spirit has been watered down. All the while we have super rich. The super rich just burdening with wealth and power at the very top end of the scale. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. I don't know if that, uh, I don't know if there could be a better description of our politicians, our leaders. We don't have princes, but we have congressmen and senators, companions of thieves. Love bribes, and they follow after Rewards, And you know, they're an elite class, aren't they? We can't even vote them out of office. We can't even, we, we can't even have a primary season that gets us somebody decent. And I guess we voted for them, so we're in collusion. Criminal activity on both sides of the political spectrum. It doesn't matter which party. We don't have justice. Just as in the days of Isaiah and in Judah, I think God's judgment will also come on us. And it's not necessarily a positive thing, is it? At least in the short term, it's not a positive thing. But Isaiah tells us what God thinks of a people who have called on his name, used his name, will say, God bless America and then go out and live corrupt lives and enact corrupt laws and twist 
truth. He says, therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired. And you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth tree whose leaves fades. And as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender. And the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together. And no one shall quench them. There's a purging. There's a cleaning. There's a process that God is going to follow through on. He did it before. We look at the history of Judah and Jerusalem. He purged the land of its corruption. He took them away. Successive waves of Babylonian attacks solved the problem of a corrupt people living corrupt lives. Took them away into Babylon, where, of course, we know they stayed for 70 years. Rene was telling me this morning, this is how real that event was. In the Biblical Archaeology Review, there's an article that's talking about new research in and around the temple area and the area where uh, David's uh, palace was suspected to be. And in that area is littered with Babylonian arrowheads raining down on the city and on the most central set of buildings where all the power was. God's judgment was complete. They were taken away. Can we really expect a righteous God to not do the same to our nations? When we call on his name and we act as though he is with us and then go and do evil. This was once a righteous nation. Not perfect, but better. We were better, weren't we? We know we could be better. We used to be better. The moral decay and the reversal of good to evil, evil to good, I don't know how much more complete it can get. Surely it's just a matter of time. But brethren, I really don't want this to be a message of doom and gloom. But this sets the stage for something that is amazing. Because in the midst of God's judgment, in the midst of his condemnation and his purging of Judah and Jerusalem, he did it for a reason. And that reason was to reform and to restore and to renew and to bring something better. So I don't want this message to be a message of hopelessness. Not at all. Because we have, as Steve mentioned, I think, last week, we have the good news, don't we? 
We have the good news. There is a new world coming. And it is better than this. It is better than this. Not because the world itself is bad. The world itself is wonderful. It is a beautiful planet. You look at some of the pictures from space and we are in awe. This beautiful world that God has made with its deserts and its mountains and its valleys and its beautiful plains and its jungles and forests and seas and oceans and full of life. God has created this wonderful world for us to live on. But what is wrong with this world? Well, what is wrong with this world is not the world itself. And it's not even man himself. It is man's government of this world. It is man's rule of this world that has made such a huge mess of things. But the good news is, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has what? Overcome the world. He has overcome this world. He has become Lord of this world. He has declared with that good news that he is Lord and that Caesar, that man, is not. And we want that reality to be here. We want it to be here now with us. There is a new world, a new government coming, and it's better than this one. Isaiah saw this new world in a vision, and he wrote it down for us almost in a prophetic poem. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What a picture. What a picture. Can you imagine that in your mind? There is a time coming when that mountain, that, that government of God, will stand above all other governments and will rule the earth. And in prophecy, as we know, that the mountains are symbols for nations. Mountains being big nations and hills, small nations. God's kingdom will rule the big mountains and the small hills, small nations. And so Isaiah is telling us that the government of God will be set up on this earth. It will be the supreme power on the earth. All nations will flow to it, be subservient to it, and all peoples governed by it. That's the kind of union we want, isn't it? That's the kind of country we want to live in. That's the kind of world we want. And I noticed something else in there. There's an element of, of natural volunteering in here. It says that, that many people will c- come and say, come on, let's go there. 
Let's go up to the house, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, and to the God of Jacob. They're not forced to. They want to. There's a new government coming. How wonderful will this be? The new world when mankind says, let's go up to this mountain. Let's learn about how to live, how to live productively, how to live healthily, how to learn from him, learn how to live productive and happy lives, learn what it means to live in peace, to be taught by God. Now, you might think in there, well, is that just religious teaching? I mean, when the kingdom of God comes on the earth, there's just going to be religious teaching, right? No. That may be some, a doctrine of, of an extreme form of Islam, but that's not what God is about. God is the creator of mathematics and of science and philosophy and, and culture and history. We will learn from him in the right way, filling in the holes in our understanding and finally getting a real education, right? A real education. And politicians love to stand up and say, we've got to improve education in America and we've got to make sure that every child is not left behind and all of those things. And they do nothing. God will teach us. And it's free. No more student loans. I think we could all vote for that, right? This is part of that new world that is coming. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. We will live in safety. And can you imagine a world without any military training facilities, without any air bases, army bases, no facilities to train to kill, no terrorist training camps, no places to learn to take the life of another. That is the world that's coming. It's better this. Instead of death comes life. And instead of death from these instruments, they are fashioned into instruments of life that produce food, that prune to bring forth further full bounties in harvests, into pruning hooks. No more war. Health, life, and food for all. And it's it's hard for us to imagine a world like this because we, we have grown up in the world that we have. And we, we have our long history. And I guess in some ways to justify what we have done as mankind, we glorify that history. And we glorify war. And there's certainly bravery and nobility and sacrifice within those things. But they didn't need to exist in the beginning, in the first place. But if we can imagine a world like this, I think our young people might 
maybe imagine it a little differently. They might start to think, oh, wait a second. Uh, I, wanna, I kinda wanna enjoy my youth. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanna have my life. I wanna grow up and do the things that, that all you old people have done. I wanna have a family and I wanna, I wanna fall in love and I wanna have a career and I, I wanna succeed in the world. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But perhaps what we've done with our teaching is that we've, we've, we've misled them a little bit and thinking that somehow those things end. They don't end. They're going to be made better. Because in the new world to come, all of those things will still exist for the generations that will be born in that kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, all those things will continue, and not just continue, thrive. Will be better. And we know it's possible. We know it's possible because for most of us here, we grew up in times that were better than this, didn't we? I can think back to when I was a, a child. I was safer. I could play and roam the neighborhood and the woods and the farms and the fields all around my house in peace, and I knew that I wouldn't be troubled. And the only negative maybe would be that everybody knew everybody, and so neighbors would tell my parents if I got up to something and I shouldn't be doing. Not that I ever did that at all. But we have, many of us, older ones of us, have lived in a better world, a safer world. My parents were not afraid for me. And I don't remember all my growing up ever hearing of a mass shooting. I, just, I don't think it ever happened. Not maybe in, in the Western world. I don't remember that. The world was not perfect, but it was better. And even more so, as I say, for some of you that are older and wiser than me, society, government, the fabric of our nation was better than what we have now. Perhaps not for everyone, but I think in general. I, but I want you to think about the best possible times for Britain, for America, that may have been, when there was the most wealth and the most security and, and the most peace. And that time will be overshadowed by the most humdrum of days in the kingdom of God. And the promise of God to our young people, you should not forget it. He is going to provide for our young people a better world. The kingdom of God on earth does not mean the end. It's going to be the beginning. A chance to fulfill all the dreams and the deep, deepest desires of all of our hearts. Toward the ends of his book, Isaiah continues almost where he left, leaves off in chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 60, we're going to go through that, that chapter, he paints this wonderful picture, this beautiful picture of the world to come. But before I read it, I want to make sure you understand the context. 
Because it would be easy for us to say, well, you know, this old worn-out prophet that long since dead, he, he, was, he was speaking to a different culture, a different people, a different nation. He was speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. What does that have to do with us? Surely he wasn't talking to London or Washington or York or New York or even Tulsa and Liverpool. Well, yes, he was. Remember, this kingdom of God is coming to the earth. No one is going to miss it. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be real. And it's going to be on the news, if there's news stations around, it's going to rock the world. You think Brexit rocked the world and the financial markets? Wait until the kingdom of God arrives. There is a new world coming. So the context we find is really very simple. One passage, one scripture in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacle. Any of you guys heard of the feast of tabernacle? We, we play that out every year. And this is the context of Isaiah's prophecy. This is a global kingdom, a promise to all of us, young and old, baptized or not, mature in the faith or immature in the faith. God is bringing his new kingdom to this earth. So what does Isaiah tell us about this new kingdom? this better world? What promises do we have from God in it? We start in verse 1. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, his glory will be seen on you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Who's he talking to? Not talking to any Jerusalem I know. Not talking to any holy city here on earth, right? This is a future Jerusalem. This is a new Jerusalem. The city of the living God to the kingdom of God to the restored Jerusalem. This is the completion of those promises that Isaiah had in the beginning. He said, I'm going to purge you. I'm going to purge you and cleanse you so that you can be made righteous again, to be redeemed, to restore her judges, to restore her ways. Give her, give us, beauty for ashes. And so here we are. I want you to imagine that you've you put on your virtual reality goggles. Anybody seen those? The new virtual reality goggles. That's what this prophecy is. In your mind's eye, imagine what is going on as we read this. And we see, we have a foretaste. We see into the future of what's going to happen. 
to bring about this better world. Look around. Look around in your mind. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. No more war. No more conflict. Your sons, no more sending your precious boys to die in a war for other men's gold. No more of that. They will come back to us. And there's almost an inference, at least to me, of resurrection, of returning those precious ones back to us. Our daughters will not be missing. They will not be sold as slaves like so many young girls are around the world. They will be nursed at our side where they should be. Families restored, men and women, children, young and old, blessed and restored back in that kingdom of God. Then you shall see, and more than just see, finally understand. We will finally understand and become radiant. And your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. There's never been such a time like this. I mean, I don't know all of history. I like to read and study history. I don't remember a time like this. Not even in the kingdom of Israel. Not even in the, the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. There's never been a time in history when this happens. There's a new world coming. It's totally new. It's totally opposite to what we're used to experiencing. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephar and all, all those from Sheba shall come. And they shall bring gold and incense. And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neoboth and shall minister to you. And they shall ascend with acceptance on my altar. And I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are the, these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their coasts? Surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. Their silver and their gold with them to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified have this imagery of, of the returning sons and daughters of Israel, of, of God's people, returning back to Jerusalem with wealth, almost with the spoils of Egypt, you know, reminiscent of that exodus, bringing them back to Jerusalem, to the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice something else that I am certain has never happened before. It says, the sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Do you ever remember a time when foreigners came to build up the walls of Jerusalem? That has never happened. 
Every single time when foreigners came to the walls of Jerusalem, it was to bring them down. It was to destroy and to steal their wealth and take God's people away from the promised land. Well, the new world is coming. And that's going to flip on its head. And they are going to build the walls for Jerusalem. And kings are going to come and make sure that Jerusalem has everything it needs. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. No more fear of war. No more fear of people bursting in with guns and killing and maiming. No more threats of, of kidnapping and theft and stealing of wealth. Just won't happen will not happen. They shall not be shut by day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and the, their kings in procession. And you have this image as though the place is humming all the time with people coming to offer gold and, and, and gems and jewels and, and worshiping there and just giving, pouring into this city into this government and this new world. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress and the pine and the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also the sons of those who are afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despised you shall fall at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Fully restored. Beautified by God. And it, it's hard to imagine. But we should imagine it. We should dwell on it. That's our hope. That is part of our hope. It will happen. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will make this happen. And notice, he's right in the middle of it. The Messiah is right there. Because he says he will make the place of his feet glorious. He is in that new, that center of that new government of that new world that he's bringing. And what an amazing way to make reconciliation. You know, I don't know if you noticed in there, but it, it says that the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And that's important. Because nations have long memories, don't they? Just ask the Irish about the English sometimes. Nations have long memories, and they will remember the grievances that they had against the other. And God's saying, that's not going to happen here. And he's going to bring those that wounded and attacked and killed and destroyed his people, and he's going to bring those, those, those sons to come and bow before them, to have a reconciliation. 
that is the kind of restoration that only God can bring. Removing the urge, that human impulse to take revenge, right? He is bringing about a restoration. All of that without war, without revenge. And they begin this healing process, ending civil wars between brothers. It says in verse 15, Whereas you have forsaken and have been forsaken and hated, so that no one went through you, I will make you an internal excellence, a joy of many generations. It's interesting. A lot of journalists and, and business people and investors are all saying, well, London is doomed. They're leaving the EU. And so it's no longer going to be the financial center of Europe. Well, that may, be, may well be true. And it certainly has been true of Jerusalem at different times. And unfortunately, it's going to be true of Jerusalem again. But then it ends. And Jerusalem becomes the center. So that everyone goes through. And they will be an eternal excellence. This is where all trade, where all business, where all the center of all worship, center of all learning comes from and through. A joy of many generations. You shall drink the milk of Gentiles, of the nations, and the milk of the breasts of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And that's such an important lesson in there. That part of this is so that they will finally know who their Savior is. Finally understand who the Mighty One of Jacob is. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. Every single facet of life will be better. Something once made of iron will be made of silver. Something once made of, of, of wood would be made of bronze. Wealth? What does that do to wealth? When there's so much richness in society? When, when things that you used to have made of wood are, are now made of bronze? And things that, oh, I'll settle for something made of silver is now just, it's just gold. What does that do? You know, I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan, and so it makes me think of that. Now, there's a connection there. So, in Star Trek, certainly in the next generation, the idea that we strive for wealth is something that they've surpassed, right? We now strive for knowledge and uh, uh, to better ourselves, experience. And, and that's what we're talking about here where the wealth is so much that it really becomes meaningless. Coveting things, what's the point in that? You have it. We are looking at a world that is totally different, where the desires of our heart have been met <laughs> on a physical level, and now we can get past some of those things and look at our spiritual growth and look at worshiping, following God into new realms and new dimensions of exploration and understanding, even as human beings. 
I'm not necessarily just talking about spirit beings. I'm actually more talking about human beings living in Jerusalem in that millennial reign of Christ. I will also make your offices peace, your magistrates righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. There is a new world coming. And it's better than this one. It's better than this one. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. And I find those two segments there, they, they reflect one another. God is saying in this place, in his kingdom, there won't be any looking to the stars and looking to the sun and the moon for guidance. He will be the light. But then also, reflected from that, is that there will never be a time when the sun sets on his kingdom. They used to say that the sun never set on the British Empire, right? The British Empire had never seen anything yet. The kingdom of God will have no end. Also, your people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the works of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. There's a new world coming. And it's better than this. It's better because God will be in it. God will make it so. He said he will usher it in in its time. It will be better because Jesus will be ruling from Jerusalem in it. And it will also be better because of each one of you. It will be better because of each one of you. Remember in the beginning in Isaiah, in chapter 60 and verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Well, those of you who are looking in your Bible right now, if you look next to the word arise and shine, there's a little cross-reference. You'll see a little reference there, and if you can look in your margin, you'll see there's a reference to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. And that gives us the context. It helps us understand what's going on here because Paul uses that to explain something to us. Because he says in verse 8, chapter 5, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things, which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. 
Verse 14, that's where the reference is. Therefore he says, and this is Paul's back, tie back to Isaiah. Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead. Arise. Be resurrected. And Christ will give you light. So, when it says arise and shine, that means rise as in the resurrection. And shine as in the glory that God gives us as those new spirit beings in his kingdom. And the glory of the Lord will be risen upon you, upon us. How we live our lives now matters. Because we have a part to play in ushering in the new world to come. In bringing in that better world. We have to learn to resist the darkness and expose it for what it is. We have to be able to know the difference between darkness and light. We have to be able to reveal the truth of God and teach it. And if we're going to teach it, then we have to learn it. And that's why this life now for each one of us matters. That's why we are enduring. That's why we haven't just been whisked away. Okay, we believe. All right, pop, off you go. We are brought into this world and we, we are changed by the Spirit of Christ. And then we're left here to learn and mature and grow and endure so that we can help build the better world, the new world that is coming. Paul says, see, in verse 15, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what is the will of the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. Understand what his will is for you individually, for each one of us. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and spiritual, in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all the things to God the Father <clears throat> in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I thank God that there's a new world coming, and it's better than this.